Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Robert Weisberg. He is Professor Emeritus at University of Illinois, a political scientist with many books to his credit, including Political Tolerance, Balancing Community and Diversity, and Polling, Policy, and Public Opinion. Uh, he has also written about students and teaching, one book that I actually reviewed a few years back, having the title, Bad Students, Not Bad Schools. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, with the increasing role of students in the spread of woke ideology and even cancel culture episodes in higher education, I think his work has renewed value and is going to be the topic of our discussion. Welcome, Professor Weisberg. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you have another book that I didn't mention uh, entitled Pernicious Tolerance, How Teaching to Accept Differences, quote-unquote, undermines civil society. Now, Bob, I, I don't know. What, what do you mean, pernicious tolerance? Tolerance isn't per pernicious. Tolerance is all to the good. Let me go back to, to, to um, the first book and, and, and pick up from there and, and see. I, I want to outline how the concept of tolerance was transformed from a wonderful thing that uh, helped uh, cool religious conflict to something which is truly pernicious, if you could imagine that. What was the thesis of political tolerance, that book? Okay. If you go back to the history of tolerance as an intellectual idea, particularly John Locke's writing on the thing, he defined tolerance as a three-part concept. First of all, there were things that were absolutely unacceptable. You, know, you could not put up with, say, for example, child sacrifice, okay? And then there are things that you liked, uh, my favorite being, say, Breyer's uh, French vanilla ice cream. Things that, you know, okay, then there was a middle category, things you could put up with. Uh, the, the root of tolerance in Latin comes from to bear. So there are things out there, you know, like certain kinds of music. I mean, there are many people who you know, don't like country western music, but they can put up with it. They go into a bar and they're playing country western music in the background. They put up with it, Okay. Now, that was a great invention, of intellectual invention, because most things in life are neither things we love nor things we hate, but things that fall into the middle category, we put up with it, right? You know, we have colleagues we put up with. We have people who, who, who dress atrociously. We don't go running up to them and say, you must change your clothes. We put up with it, right? Yeah. It makes perfect sense, right? I mean, most of us you know, understand that idea intuitively. 
Now, what I began to see in various dictionary definitions uh, that began to emerge in the 90s, a collapse of um, a three-part division into a two-part division. You either loved it or you, you hated it, and there was nothing in between. You're, you're, you're right. It's that middle ground that has been taken away. And that, that seems to be, you, you mentioned John Locke, that's liberalism. That right there is liberalism in a nutshell. I don't have it in front of me, but I recall that I first noticed this in things like the American Heritage Dictionary. You know, one of the things you do when you write a book about a concept is you look up all the dictionary definitions of it. And I started noticing that beginning in the 90s, okay, uh, tolerance became liking something. One tolerated it because one liked it. Now, from the human nature perspective, there's a huge gap between putting up with something and having to like it, to celebrate it. You can imagine on a college campus, to bring this to the educational system, okay, that you have an individual who is in the middle ground regarding homosexuality. Uh, they neither like it uh, nor love it. They, 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 they view it as part of the human condition. It's there, it's out there, they don't want to have anything to do with it, but it's live and let live. That's the key thing, live and let live. All of a sudden, they're carted off to a, to a freshman seminar in which they're told that they have to venerate uh, 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 homosexuality because that, appreciating it legitimizes this once marginal stigmatized group. In other words, they, they have to go from being indifferent, live and let live, to liking it. Now, at that point, you get into some very serious coercive social engineering. That we have now, we have to take all the oddities, uh, you know, the the transsexuals, all these the, the these um, what you might call uh, specialized uh, interests. Okay, it's a polite way of putting it. Now, if you don't appreciate them, you're transphobic, you're homophobic, you're you're uh, Islamophobic, okay? Uh, get the, yeah, there it is. It's pretty simple. Now, I kept telling people, I, when, I, when I wrote this article, which appeared, I think, in 1995 in Society Magazine, uh, I took copies of it. I sent it out to various people. Uh, I forget who, but I sort of felt I had a responsibility to warn, you know, coming to a theater near you, you know, this, this, this transformation of tolerance and they're going to jam things down your throat they're not going to go down your throat very easily so they're going to up the jamming you know what the response was zero nobody was interested how in the world these people said that twisting an idea around into deforming it actually into something that it was not a perfectly useful wonderful idea can be dangerous. This is the problem with many conservatives. I always use my father as the example. My father was a hard-headed businessman, very, very successful, I should add. And I would bounce these ideas off of him. And whenever you got something that involved defining words or transforming the culture, he would dismiss it. He was a businessman. He didn't think culture was important. He didn't worry about how words were defined. I mean, I'm sure you've seen similar uh, reactions in your experience. Well, it's been perpetually frustrating to try to communicate to 
you know, moderate conservatives or actually even moderate liberals to say, look, this, you, you think they're going to stop here with X or, or Y? No, progressives never stop. They're going to keep pushing and pushing. And when I would give examples of some of the things happening on college campuses or in faculty meetings, they would say, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's just some little thing going on in some, in some little place. They would give you the kind of shrug response. They wouldn't argue with you. They would just shrug it off as an exaggeration. And you want to say, look, when, 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 when things like the queer theory phenomenon came along in the early 90s in academia, I was a liberal back then. I didn't think it was any serious thing in, in, in intellectual thought or certainly American society. But it took over the humanities very quickly. And now it's, 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 out, it's everywhere. It's, it's in corporate America. Right. Let me give you my interpretation of why that happened. Okay. Okay. And it has to do with uh, academics being cheapskates. Now, what happens is you can never get academics to pay for anything that involves uh, uh, like, like a think tank. or, or, or they, I'm involved here in New York City with a variety of, uh, let's say, think tank various groups. There are very, very few academics. I'll be in a room at the Manhattan Institute, for example. There'll be 150 people there. Maybe there are two academics. We never, we never fund anything. We always get money. The first question we ask, how can I get money out of something? If you ask a bunch of academics to take out their checkbook and write a check for some cause, they will flee the room, right? Okay? So what happens is you have all these uh, so-called uh, centrist or right-of-center groups, you know, AEI, uh, Heritage, uh, uh, Manhattan Institute, you know, you know the list, right? I mean, they range from you know, Cato and all those places, okay? What happens is the people who fund them are interested in economic questions. They're interested in things like repealing the capital gains tax, okay, <laughs> or changing the law on uh, uh, pass-throughs on, 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 or, you know, redefining what, what a business is and schedule C, okay? The people who pony up all the money for the intellectual infrastructure, center and right, don't care anything about culture and language. They're like probably your father and my father, right? <laughs> it's so stupid. Nobody would ever wonder about redefining merit to, be, to, to, to construe, it, construe it as a culturally defined uh, yak, 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 right? There is no financial powerhouse on our side to fund a, a protection of the culture and the language, period. Right. You can get out there, you know, and you can start talking about tariffs, you know, or intellectual property, you know, anything economic, okay? And you have lots of, of, of people who will take out their checkbook and they will say, what do you need, 50, 100, 250,000, whatever you need, I'll write out the check, right? Go into a group of academics. Roll, let's roll back the clock to uh, 1990. And actually, I, I'll give you, I could give you some examples, but it would be too embarrassing. Okay, roll back the clock, and you're before a bunch of actors like you, me, liberals, good-thinking people. You know, we're not crazy. We're not we're okay. And you say, gentlemen and ladies, there is going to be an assault on the English language on the very basis of the university's mission to find truth, 
This assault will be led by a screwball left. If I described it to you now, you would say I'm paranoid and fantasizing. But we should have to strangle it in its crib, right? Now, I'm asking each one of you, take out your checkbook and write a check for $1,000, by the way, which we could have easily have done. Academics may not be paid well, but we're not paid that poorly, right? Okay. How many people you think would say, okay, $1,000, nothing. Okay, what about $100? <laughs> no, nothing. I'm telling you. Uh, I'm in the process of writing an article, uh, uh, which I've tentatively titled uh, Dr. Welfare Queen, Ph.D. Uh, we don't give money to anything. And as a result, we have no champions out there who are fighting our causes. I mean, you know, there are lots of people out there fighting for, say, bigger defense budgets or fighting for, you know, the different regulations of, 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 of what the, defines a media outlet or, you know, you, you know, these sorts of things. But can you imagine, I mean, you know, the, the websites that we use, okay, like Mining the Campus and stuff like that, you know, we have to go begging. You know the story about that. You're the one who told it to me. Okay. We have to go begging for leftovers. We have to go to these foundations and you say, can you look behind the couch? Okay. Oh, okay, but Bob, Bob, now, in 2020, when these captains of industry, businessmen, conservative figures who have, you know, put it all in on law and economics, now that they see how the English language is being redefined, how Supreme Court justices who we thought were conservatives are now speaking like gen gender theorists? Do they understand now? But, but, but wait, but now, do the funders, do the big conservative funders understand that this is a religious and culture war? It's not a political battle. It's not a policy issue anymore. Do they, are they starting to get that? No, they've been marinated. Okay, they've been, they, they themselves have come through the system. We probably have the captains of industry today. Okay, remember uh, uh, the Stanley Rothman Lictor's book on foundations and why foundations go left? Yeah. Okay, remember he talks about, you know, the, 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 old, the old codgers get together uh, and they can't wait to go out and play golf. Meanwhile, they're, the, the, they're bureaucrats, people are actually running the thing at Ford, you know, Rockefeller. Right. Are funneling money into the left, you know, into La, La Raza and things like that, okay? The, a person today, okay, who is a captain of industry, probably probably graduated college, what, 1980? Graduated college, say, was 20 years old, okay? That, that, that is 40 years ago. So that person is 60 years old. In other words, a, a 1980 graduate is today a senior, a senior uh, executive. They, they have been marinated, okay? And I, I, I hear it, you know. They, they, will, they will tell you that uh, diversity is our strength. You know, war is peace. And they believe it. They've been marinated. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure uh, how to, 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 to reverse this kind of thing. But uh, anybody who thinks that uh, this is an argument I've had with a lot of people, and, and I'm happy to engage over beer one night with you, do they really believe this stuff, or are they just the corporate mouthpieces that will say that, that who are willing to say anything to keep the cash going? Yeah.
Well, you you tell me. What is it? You tell me. Do they really I, I believe it? I don't know. I mean, the, the only thing what you really have today going for us, okay? Okay. There 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 are a few rays of hope, and one of the rays of hope. And it's particularly among males. Males are, are, are much more the canary in the mine in the mine than the uh, than women are. Okay, people coming through, young people coming through the college system. Okay, today know full well that this whole oppression narrative is a crock. I mean, if you were born in the year uh, uh, two thousand, okay, today that would make you what a junior in in in. Uh, um, college, something like that, okay, what you have seen, okay, is a life of reverse discrimination, you have been in a situation where, you know, you are struggling to get into a decent school, you know, with, say, you know, 15, 50 SATs, and, you know, you know all that sort of stuff, okay, and, black, and your black classmate is getting offers from everywhere, you know, with, uh, you know, 1150, okay, so what happens is the rhetoric, the rhetoric uh, of, of, of give me this, give me that, because we have been oppressed, falls absolutely flat on, uh, uh, with these kids. Their experience with the, with the well, let's just call it the narrative, okay? The best way of putting this, okay, is to go back, uh, this is John Lukash's argument about the uh, Soviet Union, okay? By, by the late 80s, in the Eastern, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, smart people, younger smart people, no longer believed it. That's the hope. In other words, the old Bolsheviks, they, 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 they believed it as fanatics. The people right after World War II kind of believed it. Everything was in ruin. Everything was a disaster. You know, Marxism might be really the solution, right? Fast forward to about the mid-80s. It was obvious, obvious that Marxism had failed, capitalism had worked. And it was the younger people who recognized that. Now, my feeling is, tie this back to the university, these are the young kids who run affirmative action bake sales, for example, you know, who organize these conservative clubs on campus, who invite people like other McDonald's. And you know what these kids do? They scare the crap out of the old uh, conservative uh, dignitaries. Don't shh. Don't make so much trouble. But but is this is this? Do they think this is still going to work? Is it still going? The the sort of the pacification, the playing along. I I use the phrase peace in our time, appeasement. That's what it is. Give them enough, they'll go away. I I like to use the expression, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Dane guilt. You know, Dane guilt is. What is it? Okay, Dengelt was the money that, this is, this is old, uh, 9th or 11th century. Towns in northern Eng England, okay, which could, would have raids from the Vikings. We were called the Danes, okay? Uh, they would, you know, every once in a while they'd come down, you know, steal everything, rape the women, etc. So they worked out a system which they would pay extortion right. called the Dane Right, Gelt. right, right. Now the expression was, when you pay the Dane Gelt, the, gate, the Dane never goes away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it, so well, you, you might have... You, you might you might have some relief for six months and then they'd be back, you know, uh, sailing up the Tem the Thames River. And and what happens is, is is that when you get kids like this, okay, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about putting the mafia in charge in universities and getting rid of these deans, you know, 
who uh, are nice guys. Put a guy named, you know, you know, Big Balls Jalenti in charge, okay? And, he, and you come in, you know, and, and, and uh, try to intimidate him. Okay, and, and this is the transformation. What, you, what you're getting in the United States right now, okay, I, I, I don't want to beat this to death, but it, it's like the Jews in Eastern Europe uh, before World War II, okay, who, who really believed that the old solution would work well. You know how they did. I mean, when they, when they were kicked out of uh, Spain, they went to the uh, Isabel Inferno, and they offered more loans. Conservatives have been so badly beaten. It reminds me, you ever see those ASP, ASPCA commercials on television for money where they show these dogs in cages huddling and shaking? <laughs> those, are, those are academic conservatives. Yeah, that's conservatives. I can give you more details when this interview is over, okay? But that's because they've been beaten down so much, okay? And as soon as they, uh, you know, extortionist enters the room, they can't get out their checkbook fast enough, you know, pay off, okay? They make the payoffs, give them the money, give them the money, okay? But there were people in the, in the uh, among Jews in Eastern Europe, I don't know if you know the name Jabotinsky, okay, uh, who said enough is enough. Okay, and after the war, after the war, uh, the British thought that the Jews were finished because, you know, I mean, these were people who, who had no military background, no military experience, easy pushovers other than here and there. They never resisted anything. And suddenly what happens is, is they start resisting. And I, that gives me a little bit of hope. Okay, there are little strains of hope. You know, it's like the collapse of, of, of Soviet Union. Nobody predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, particularly Soviet specialists. They were the most wrong, right? But people who, who knew the situation, uh, who had lived there, said that nobody believes it anymore. That nobody believes, you know, that, that uh, this is a worker's paradise, okay? Uh, and so what will happen is eventually, my hope is, is that college administrators who are opportunists to the cause, by the way, you know, it's interesting that many of the people who led the, the way out of communism were former communists because they were, by definition, the most opportunistic people in society. Only a true opportunist would join the Communist Party in 1980, right? I mean, who could have believed that kind of crap? Uh, but I really have this feeling that college administrators, with a couple exceptions here and there, okay, at some point are going are to say, you know, nobody believes this stuff anymore. You know, that our 15th dean of diversity and inclusion is not going to transform the campus into some sort of, you know, Potemkin village of, of, of diversity. And they're going to say, I don't believe it anymore. And everybody say, you too, you too. You know, it's like in the 1980s when everybody discovered that everybody, every other person they knew was gay. <laughs> you too? <laughs> I had no idea that you too. Yes, I, I, I didn't know you either, you know. <laughs> and and what will happen is, is, is like communism, okay? It will collapse. Because nobody, nobody really believes. I mean, do people really believe, as Princeton, that you can set up the uh, Committee for Public Safety and go through everything to, uh, to uh, have an exorcism to get racism out of some report someplace, you know, that using the term owner for the person who owns the uh, NBA franchise, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And my feeling is, is that that's going to come from younger people who are tougher, and have not have not been marinated for as long in in, in the Kool Aid, uh, 
that's not a very good image. Uh, the soup is better. Um, and they're going to they're gonna stand up one day and say, you know what? This is a crock. I have seen what this diversity mania does. This is why my alma mater, Bard College, tuition is now $72,000. Yeah. When I got to Bard, I graduated Bard in, in, in 65. I used to pay my tuition in cash out of my wallet. Believe it or not, I would literally hope I want to pay my tuition. Tuition, housing fees, everything, board, everything. Seventy-two grand. If I showed up today, I'd have with three suitcases, and they would lock me up for RICO violation. I'm sure. Uh, but you know, it's a fraud. The whole thing is a is a farce. And the question is, when will it collapse? And again, nobody knew the Soviet Union would collapse. Okay, uh, because it's hollow. What will be the first signs that it is beginning to collapse? I wrote a piece in uh, American Figure called The Sputnik Moment. Are you all not remember The Sputnik Moment? Oh, yeah. You are. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was a kid. You were a kid. Okay. Nobody believed that the you, – if you go back to America, or I'll find it, I'll send it to you. Okay? You know, what? The, the polls on the time, everybody was panicked. Remember Hyman Rickover was running around beating up everybody? Okay. Stories of Russian kids studying calculus late into the night. Okay. Okay, the the idea of a Sputnik moment, okay, when something really catastrophic goes wrong, okay, and somebody says, you know, what have we been doing? Now, the exa- I wrote another piece in talking about uh, uh, the Chinese are pouring billions and billions of dollars into technology. We're pouring money into diversity. You have, you have a minute for an old for an old Soviet era joke here. This is a this is the meeting in, in 1985 or something like that. A workers group in the factory, and they're being lectured to by some old Soviet general who is uh, uh, talking about the wonders of you know communism. Okay, and he's got your finally a worker raises his hand and says, "Comrade general, I have questions for you." Yes, worker. Is it true that they say that in America they have many, many more cars than we have here in the Soviet Union? So the old general thinks for a while and says, yes, that's true, but we have more parking spaces. <laughs> <laughs> now, say, roll forward. Com- Comrade university president, is it true that the, that the, that the, that the uh, Chinese have a hundred times more researchers working on super quantum computers than we have and investing 10 times more money than we are. Is that possible, comrade university professor? Thinks for a while and says, yes, that's true. But our workers are more diverse. <laughs> right, right. And I think what's going to happen is, is that eventually, God forbid, God forbid, something will happen. Now, the something moment really was a blip. I mean, you know, it was 17 pounds of, 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 of hardware, and we caught up very quickly. But at some point, okay, I mean, right now we're surviving because of capital. We're surviving because of investments made in the past, okay? Caltech reflects decisions that were made 30 years ago. MIT reflects, okay? Now, what I pointed out in my article, I'll send it to you. What I pointed out, okay, is the Chinese are pulling your students out of the uh, of the top tech schools? Are they really? Yeah, that's a policy of the Chinese. Yeah, it's in there. Okay. Yeah. 
all these uh, guys at Caltech and uh, MIT and Carnegie Mellon, you know, you know, Stanford. Okay, they're not going to send them over here uh, to, to begin with, and the ones that are here are going back. It used to be that they graduated from these places and they wouldn't go home for the obvious reasons. You know, there was no money back there for the research, okay, and they lived in horrible conditions. And they live like kings and queens here. But the Chinese are now realizing that. I, I, by the way, I give you all the data on that in that article, okay? It's quite remarkable. It's absolutely quite remarkable. The, the, the extent to which in the United States our high-end technology depends upon foreign students, overwhelmingly Chinese and Indians in second place, okay? Now, the old days, you know, the old, the old days, okay, we had... Uh, you know, the, the, you know who you know who who, who built the atom bomb and read Red Lab at MIT and all kinds of things like that. Okay, we were very lucky. We imported a bunch of Jews from Germany, or we had our homegrown variety like Richard Feynman and Oppenheimer and people like that. Okay, but those guys are now managing hedge funds, owning hedge funds, right? And they don't go into, into into physics anymore. Yeah. In fact, physics are now hiring those people. A lot of the people in the high-end uh, physics field are working for hedge funds, mathematicians, things like that. Okay. What happens is, so we rely on foreign brains. Now, the old foreign brains we relied on, okay, you, you, you know, the, the Manhattan Project, Red Lab, all those places, okay, they're gone. They're gone, and we're relying on Chinese brains. What happens when the Chinese pull back? All the people working in American high tech. There it is. So what you're going to have is you, we're going to have we're going to hire people, you know, who have minors in what colonial gender studies and things like that. Okay, we're going to have the people who are going to be hiring them are going to be under you know are, are going to give speeches. Well, you know, there are different ways of looking at electronic circuitry. <laughs> you know, we're going to apply French uh, French philosophy. To computer engineering, and what, yeah, and we see a little bit of this with the five G business. Okay, I, I want to bring you back at the end of 2020. This will be this will be after the election. It will be after we've had uh, a strange college semester. Uh, we'll see what happens in the colleges in the next six months, and I want to have you back and continue on precisely this conversation. Can we do that? I hope, by the way, I, I haven't violated the, the, you know what the invisible fence is? No. <laughs> what is the invisible fence? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's how conservatives are controlled. You notice every conservative wears a little thing around his neck, and they come running at you, right? You, you've never walked in a, in a suburban neighborhood, and suddenly the door opens, this ferocious animal comes running out after you, right? And then at about 50 feet from you, stops dead in his tracks. The, the image of the conservative, of the invisible fence is a very powerful one. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that metaphor from you. It's pretty good. So, all right, Bob. Robert Weisberg, thank you for joining us, and we will have you back. Okay, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2000.
2930.